Welcome to Old School Guns, the podcast that tells you exactly like it is. And this is episode 126. 126. So, as always, if you have any questions or comments, you can leave them in the comments section on Podbean, or you can email them to me at kbmakel at aol.com. kbmakel at aol.com. And I love hearing from you, so uh, uh, go ahead and uh, send them in. I will probably, a lot of times I reply directly in the next podcast, but but most of the time I email back also. Uh, so, you know, unless you slip it by me, I'll get it. Uh, let's go to first things first. And uh, remember, I, I don't really do the politics too much. Um you know, it's uh, obviously this Supreme Court justice. He's a big libtard anyway. Uh, he's retiring, and and Biden says, without even quit going through the qualifications or anything, he says, "I'm going to appoint a black woman." Um, that's that seems strange because number one, it didn't work out so well last time. <laughs> Witness the giggler. Kamala Harris, who's who's an embarrassment and a fool. But not all black women are the same. They're like anyone else, any other. When you identify people by something like, I'm going to, if he'd said, I'm going to do a white man, well, it could be a incredible liberal or it could be a staunch conservative. I mean, to say a person's gender and race or who you're going to appoint doesn't doesn't delineate anything it doesn't explain anything and in fact it it makes it look like the most important criterion to joe biden are the ones that should matter least it should not matter what the person's gender is or what their race is who is the best person you could put on the supreme court but right now he's eliminated a lot of the best people so we'll see who he finds you know Candace Owens and Winsome what's her name Winsome Summers you know the the lieutenant governor Winsome Sears I think Winsome Winsome Sears Um, they're very different than say Maxine Waters they're all three black women they all three under the, the Biden construct could be could be nominated to the Supreme Court, but they hold very, very different political views. So he's chosen the least important thing and made it the most important thing, which is which is a Biden trait, a Biden trait. Uh, anyway, uh, not to go too much into politics, it, the polls are catching up with Biden, even the left-leaning liberal communist media is turning on him because he's such a fool he is an absolute fool and you know we we've had you know their big point was trying to restore like we're going to put the adults back in charge well if they're the adults i'll take the children any day of the week you could literally find teenagers who could run the government more logically than biden and company and uh you see with the Ukraine policy, we're going to get tough, we're going to sit, we're going to fight, no, we're not going to fight, no, we're not going to do this. All I hope is that he does not get us into some sort of 
ground conflict with the Russian army because unlike us in all of our governmental organizations and our unfortunately our military and everything else the Russians take themselves seriously they're serious people and they're gonna do a serious job um, we don't have serious people in charge we have General Milley we have people she's retired now obviously and gone but Martha McSally we have all these people that you can't take seriously in any sort of military context much less as the leaders and the norm and the exemplars that we're looking for we don't have Audie Murphy anymore we now have the lesbian or LGBTQ uh, what are they, politically correct police and make sure enough women are doing this and that and they're more concerned about diversity and equity and inclusion than they are about anything else and unfortunately the thing they need to worry about is war fighting but as we saw with the withdrawal from Afghanistan they don't seem to put much stock in that they don't seem to address a lot of importance and that left to you know unfortunately 13 lives being just absolutely spent like nothing and uh, I I'll tell you this right now I'll tell you this right now fools like Biden fools like Harris fools like Millie they're no match they're no match for anybody who takes themselves seriously whether it's a um, 12th century misfit thugs with cast-off weapons in Afghanistan or a very shrewd serious hardcore military machine that has emerged out of the wreckage of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War so there you go uh, that brings us back though you know that's the stuff in our own backyard is is uh, getting horrible <laughs> city of San Jose completely unconstitutional trying to make everybody get a gun license and liability insurance and all the rest of it none of this stuff's gonna stand up in court even in a liberal court this stuff isn't gonna stand up so it's really not worth getting all all upset about they're gonna get slammed and you know here's what I'll say about San Jose um, I've spent a lot of time in California and San Jose is a is a pit it is a shithole it is some place that you would not want to raise your children you would not want to have a home you would not want to conduct business it is a pit and it is one of the worst places on it is an armpit I mean it is an armpit it's a pit and it, an armpit is the kind of pit it is it's an armpit um, ridden with crime gangs and everything and and the law-abiding gun owners aren't the problem the problem is their policing the problem is their tolerance of illegal gangs of crime and everything else so they're a pit you know San Jose is something you'd find in the third world it it really doesn't belong here and who knows maybe we can get rid of it somehow but anyway San Jose you know it, it is the it is our own 
third world shithole right here in the in the good old USA. Um, another thing, getting into some gun stuff, high powers, high power pistols. And I think now there are three. Tesis is making one. Those are the guys in Turkey. And hey, I'm with you. I don't like the Turks either. You know, they kind of, what is it, about 10 years ago, took this kind of Muslim, hard Muslim turn. So I'm not a real big fan of Canic pistols or Tesis pistols. Although I will say their, their 1911A1 <laughs> looks looks pretty nice, actually, for especially I think it's a $400 item. Um, and the 45 caliber ones sell out really quick. They, they usually have the, at least the classic firearms, they usually have the 9mm one in stock. I know, who wants that? But anyway, um, Tesis makes one. Of course, Springfield Armory is making one called the, is it the P-35? I guess it's called the P-35. It's basically a classic high power. You know, it's good gun, very good gun. We'll talk about it in a little bit. Um, and where they source those guns from, I don't know. Uh, they've, they've had a lot of connections in South America where those guns have been manufactured in both Argentina and Brazil, I think. So maybe they're coming from there, or at least components are coming from there. And then uh, Browning, FN. Not Browning, but really FN. Um, they're reintroducing the high power, I guess, in some improved versions. It'll be interesting to see. A friend of the podcast sent me some info on that. I gave it a quick quick glance over. Um, modernized high powers have never really done well in the market. They've tried to... Various companies, and it's really not the big guys... Um, I think FN actually tried. They tried a double-action high-power at one point. Um, you know, it's it's a hard pistol to improve on. Um, lot, surprisingly, though, it, it's got this heck, Jekyll and Hyde kind of reputation. For people who don't like 1911s, the first thing they will tell you, well, John Browning saw all the mistakes he made in the 1911 and he rectified them in the high-power. It's complete hogwash. Absolutely complete, utter hogwash. But that used to be the, the common wisdom, as is so many things in the in gun lore. Um, so the, the reason that's hogwash, I'll just go into that real quick, is, and this is on the Jekyll side, um, John Browning really didn't design the, the Browning high power. He, he sort of did. He started it. And he died in 1926, okay? P-35 means, or HP-35, however they, they call it, that That meant it came out in 1935. It got delayed for a while, redesigned, and the guy who de- designed the uh, SAFN and FNFAL, Didonne Saïv, he's the guy who perfected it. So there's no guarantee that if you put the Browning high power in front of Browning, that he would even recognize it as his own design. There's no guarantee of that. Uh, some of the some of the early, you know, a few a few of those, you know, books that you can you can kind of glom onto and even find it in the internet. You know, they they will show some of the, the early prototypes which don't look anything at all like a Browning High Power, but they're purported to be such. So 
there's no guarantee that if he, <laughs> that John Browning would even know the Browning high power is his. So uh, that's the that's the Jekyll part of it. There's there's no, and it was done for a French army uh, solicit contract solicitation. So there's no guarantee that Browning actually rectified 1911 design deficiencies in this other design. There's just no guarantee of that at all. So when it's, com when it's compared to the 1911, it is Dr. Jekyll. It is everything good. It is everything the 1911 should have been, and it is a perfected, developed, evolved design. Okay, that's a hogwash, but, but, but that's the Dr. Jekyll um, reputation it has. But when you compare it to other 9mm, all of a sudden, the Browning High Power becomes Mr. Hyde. And let's see, it doesn't have enough capacity. It's a design that really didn't go through all the design iterations that other guns, like the 1911, did. So it's got sharp edges and... and some people say, oh, it'll cut you. It's, it's, you know, it's got the worst hammer bite. It's got this, that, and the other thing. And they go on and on and on with the deficiencies of the Browning High Power. It's steel. It's heavy. It's not that accurate. That's the, all the Mr. Hyde stuff that comes out when they try to compare it to more modern or other 9mm pistols. So that's the, the Jekyll and Hyde of the Browning High Power. Um, do I think they will be a success in the marketplace? Um, I think the design is too good to die, but I'm not sure there's a big enough market. The 9mm market is very, very competitive and very competitively priced. If you go from the 450 to the $600 price range, um, there's a lot of options and as we know uh, polymer framed guns are cheaper to make and the very simplified design of the Glock which a lot of them emulate is very inexpensive it's very very inexpensive to make now this is some years ago but just to give you a, a quick a quick deal that the actual cost at that time to manufacture a Glock was like $71. Okay, that's the time, the labor. When I have a, if I'm standing at the end of the Glock assembly line and the Glock, the newly manufactured Glock plops into my hands, it represents $71 of time, material, labor, everything it takes to make that a Glock okay from the raw materials so you know and and the cost of the raw materials so I assume that other guns are probably same and, and even if that's even if that's double now which I doubt it is but even if that's doubled now um, you know you're still talking that a pistol can be manufactured for let's just say hundred and forty dollars can you manufacture an all-steel Browning high power for that? And the answer is probably yes, but you have to have volume. 
you probably have to be making thousands and thousands and thousands of these things and will the market support that that I don't know that I don't know um, I don't know if it's gonna make a renaissance but it's just too good a pistol for it to die and that's why uh, it comes back that's why FN brought it back um, I have a Hungarian high power that I just think is awesome I think it is an awesome gun very well made um, just very very well done and almost all the parts all the parts except the barrel interchange because it's got a supported barrel but um, very very good gun and it's a great design it's a great gun to have is it perfect well nothing is but it's a very very good design so we will see high powers for a while my prediction is if you want one buy one because I don't think that this glut that we will see of them in the next two to three years is going to last. Ten years from now, they're not going to be making them. Um, I just don't think so. And so, if you want one, buy one now. Because, like, you know, we have to we have to take the Python lesson or the the Python paradigm. You know, those things were selling for a lot of money around 2000 you if you bought a used python in nice nice condition you're gonna pay eight or nine hundred dollars for it what do you pay today uh, three thousand is not outrageous not outrageous at all and even the new pythons are very pricey compared to the older pythons so um, you know the the lesson is that they'll they'll make it for a while but as soon as something that they can turn a better profit on comes up and has greater demand um, they're gonna make those you know same thing I've told people about the uh, SIG P210 I've told people about them um, if you want one get one now they're never going to be less expensive they're never you're never gonna find this deal again uh, for years even the surplus used ones uh, have been very very expensive and, and uh, those aren't the ones that are just off the off the factory line brand new pistols these are these are used pistols former former service pistols still great guns and really awesome to have but they commanded an incredibly high price nearly two thousand dollars when they're they're coming out and uh, you might be able to find a, a good deal on one but but that's it speaking of the 210 real quick if you watch the uh, Richard Burton Richard Harris Roger Moore Hardy Krueger who just passed movie the wild geese um, you, you have to look closely but uh, um, Roger Moore has a sig p210 in the uh, early part of that movie very nice it's very very nice so anyway that's the uh, that's the deal on the high power if you want one get one it's going to be the SIG 210 of tomorrow I guarantee it uh, too good a design and it's you know if I just say one more thing it's it's perfectly scaled for the nine millimeter cartridge so it's it's really a perfect perfect thing right there okay uh, another thing I've talked about this before you know I just looking at the things all the little snippets that come out of the shot show and it's just like 
everyone and their uncle is making a precision bolt rifle they all look alike i can't even hardly tell them apart it's all the chassis and you know you you, you look you look and there's not it's not like looking at an ar versus a uh, an fnfal or you know an m1 carbine it, it's not even it's not even it's not any kind of difference like that what you're seeing is the, these things are virtually identical um, in many ways you can't really tell them apart now when you put them side by side you can see differences but uh, they're out there and we talked about this a little bit the last podcast everybody and their uncle is making one this is this is the AR market redo um, remember uh, as soon as global war on terror kicked off uh, the AR market just exploded well, now the AR market is kind of leveled off, and, and it declined some. Um, it's still there, and it's still forceful, but um, the real deal is the money now is not going into ARs. The money is going into these bolt-action precision rifles, which is interesting because, you know, the bolt-action is a hundred and... Jeez, I think some of them go back to the 1870s, you know, so the bolt action is an old design that's that's coming coming back very very strong i think another thing fueling this has been the fascination with military sniping the fascination with the mathematics of long-range shooting which now we have the really the tools where you can you can really do that scientifically you know we have the lab radar you know the doppler radar that that um is a chronograph we now have scopes that have these very fine and and very repeatable increments and adjustments <coughs> we also have excellent glass some of it's chinese but it's it's there's some excellent glass out there um, so we have all of this stuff and it's it's all come together and it's all and you know and you'd be remiss not to mention um, a whole host of new new calibers. Um, I guess the the example you can use, and and there's plenty of others, would be 6.5 Creedmoor. I mean, it was designed specifically for that type of shooting, and it's really been the leader in a lot of that shooting. Even so far now, they've got six millimeter Creedmoor, and I think 22 Creedmoor. <laughs> you know, they keep necking it down. But the the real theory is that. Um, this stuff is ro rolling to the point that um, it's where all the money is, and it is big money is going into this stuff. Um, rifles in the thousands of dollars, scopes in the thousands of dollars. It's it's set the hand loading hobby kind of on its ear. Um, it's been this meld of the kind of hand loading you needed to do for bench rest has now become a lot more mainstream, uh, mainstream, not mainspring, uh, mainstream, with um, very, very expensive equipment, precision dies, um, powder handling equipment that lets you measure very accurate, repeatable quantities that you charge your case with. Um, and of course the bullets have, have been just you know there's just 20 in 20 years there's just been a revolution in rifle bullets with the uh, very low drag type bullets and bullets optimized to shoot 
past 500, past 1,000 yards. So um, there's been a huge revolution. Kind of, I would say it's a quiet revolution because it hasn't attracted the attention that the AR thing did, where everybody, everybody had an M4 or an AR type gun. Uh, I can remember you go to the range, and you know. He, as you as you progress through life there are certain milestones one of the milestones i used to see the older guys out there with the the o3a3 they would have their hand loads sometimes their hand loads were cast bullets and they had those things dialed in and they were shooting small groups at at uh um, 100 yards or 150 yards and and they kind of had the the fuddy shooting jacket and the fuddy hat and everything and uh, I was out at the range some years ago, and I saw the guy with the fuddy hat, the fuddy jacket, and I just, he, he opened his gun case, and I expected him to pull out the ubiquitous O3A3, but instead, he actually pulled out an AR with a big suppressor on it, and a Mondo scope, a big Mondo scope on it, so, you know, but he was dressed the same way as these guys who I'd always seen, you know, years before. So uh, you know things things do change, and these these rifles. I don't know what's going to come next. It'll be interesting to see what the next wave is, because along with this wave of the centerfire precision rifles has come the rimfire precision 22s, and um, NRL 22, and a few other things have come along, and and uh, you know so they it's gotten swept along with this this thing of very precise shooting at longer distances and scaled back in NRL 22 for 22s so we will see this is um, a very interesting you know as you look at trends through the years from everything from Magnum revolvers were the deal to you know then the then the modern sporting rifles and now this, and I mean, there have been other things in there too. You know, Wonder Nines and the polymer pistol revolution, all this stuff. But, you know, the big money and the industry emphasis right now, I think, is um, it's going towards these precision bolt guns. That's for sure. And as I said, uh, precision hand loading tools. Um, I'm a person who started hand loading to save money. You know, if I wanted to shoot, I there's only so much money and for that amount of money if you hand load you could have more ammunition and if you you took care you could produce very good ammunition now there's a whole industry going towards the precision stuff um, I saw one press and I go that looks pretty interesting and you know, that's, that's a pretty interesting looking press and it was twelve hundred dollars and I'm like holy cow who can afford that and the answer is, if you've got a $10,000 scope gun combo, uh, $1,200 press is a, uh, a fairly minor accessory to have if you're going to hand load. And same thing with dies. You're talking about the $200 sets of precision match dies. Um, I can't do it. I mean, uh, I just don't have the budget for that so maybe the $50 dies are gonna be good enough for me and maybe at some point they will hold back my performance but 
I'm really not shooting beyond five or six hundred yards at this point so I think I'm okay especially if I use good bullets and good other things but yeah a hundred is it 50 or 100 bullets will cost you for like 40 bucks if you buy the really good stuff you know the really good stuff is uh, gonna cost you some money but you know it's it's money well spent whether you go top drawer or I've always believed that you should if a guy tries to jump in to do this from from go never having hand loaded before He's going to make a very expensive, frustrating mistake. Um, the deal is you should learn, get a get a rock chucker style press, or even a Lyman turret press. Load for something that's not as critical. It can even be a pistol cartridge. Or load 5.56, you know, your plinking ammo. Learn the basics of hand loading learn how to do it well learn how to solve the problems that inevitably crop up and at that point then you can upgrade and go into the precision stuff with the confidence and knowledge that you're going to need to produce the world-class ammo that you're going to want to produce if you <laughs> if you buy a twelve hundred dollar press so uh that's that's what i would uh caution people but yeah, there's there's a um, there's a huge market for very very high end, very very good equipment, and uh, you know that's a, that's a good thing. A lot of that came from Benchrest. Benchresters have been doing it for decades and decades. Now the rest of us are are getting a taste of that, and that brings me to the next subject. The next subject is talked about this before. Uh, components. Um, you know primers are insane right now and it's obvious price gouging and everything else you know something that used to cost I'll just say twenty dollars for a thousand small rifle primers they're now getting hundred and twenty five dollars for everywhere that's outrageous and I'm hoping that this stuff you know that some availability will happen in the next couple of years and and uh, at least the next year or so and we will at least return at least cut that in half maybe even cut that down a little lo little lower than that um, yeah I'm not liking this at all I'm not liking this primer thing at all now one of the things is there was a company in Texas that just opened a plant where they're just gonna make primers so we'll see how that goes I hope they're successful I really do because these other guys are gouging us and you know what? I don't know how many other guys there are. It seems like Winchester, Federal, Remington. I think they're all made by the same company. So when you get a shortage like this, you know, if we had three separate companies, one of them would probably innovate and say, you know what? We're going to produce maybe a little less ammunition because other people are going to be doing that and we don't want to get into a glut situation but we could produce primers and sell all we could make you know there, there would be some strategy there but as long as they're all owned by the same conglomerate uh, you're not going to see any of that so um, the ammunition market in my opinion is going to become very very strange um, as soon as the 
cheaper Russian ammo dries up, all that's going to be available is more expensive high-end stuff, and that's going to have an effect. And either some people will suck it up and they'll say, well, you know, rather than shooting, you know, three boxes, I'll just shoot one. That may happen. It's definitely going to scare some people away from the sport, which is the bad thing that we want to avoid. And, um, you know, I hope that these, these, these conglomerates don't get too large a grip. I hope that there's some Eastern European uh, manufacturing that, that helps fill the void so we can still get the kind of inexpensive ammo in, you know, 7.62 by 54... 5.45 by 39, 7.62 by 39, 9mm Makarov, which is the next thing to talk about. The, the, the 30 Super Carry, which I have dubbed the 30 Stupid Carry. You know, the more I investigate that, the more this is just a an idiotic lark. And I, I guarantee that this was some sort of a pet project that some executive had in mind. But, you know, this whole, their whole theory, when, when their theory is illogical, then you know there isn't a lot of analysis or forethought on this. And here's, here's where they're illogical. The 30 Super Carry is designed to bridge the gap between the 380 and 9mm. Okay, there is a substantial gap between the 380 and the 9mm as far as pressure, velocity, bullet weight, all that. That void is effectively, very effectively filled by the 9mm Makarov. If you, even the numbers will support this. The 380 is in Europe known as the 9x17. The 9mm Makarov is known as the 9x18. And the 9mm Luger is known as the 9x19, okay? So you don't need the 30 Super Carry or Stupid Carry in there. Uh, the, the deal that it's going to produce high velocity and all the rest of this, you know, have they predicated that on the tiny short barrels that these guns are going to operate with. When you're talking about a lot of these concealed concealed carry guns, and I've said it before, um, they do not have long barrels. Therefore, you cannot guarantee a certain level of ballistic performance if the powder charge is not fully burnt when the bullet leaves the uh, the gun. It just it's going to leave the barrel at a certain speed, and that's that. Now, if it was a 10-inch barrel, they might leave the barrel at a much higher speed because the propellant behind it is more thoroughly burning. Um, we just can't predict that. Um, now they can they can fool with it all they want. My my deal is they're also trying to sell it on capacity. Um, now that doesn't bridge between 380 and 9 millimeter. That's a whole different different deal. It's a thinner cartridge, so therefore you can fit maybe in a 13 round gun you could fit 15 well the kind of tiny guns that they're putting them in the pocket rocket guns um, I don't know that capacity is the most important issue with those guns those guns are not designed that you walk into with a, a protracted fight with 
and need 15 rounds. Now, some people will say, well, more capacity, the better. Okay, fine. Carry a gun that holds 17 rounds or 19 rounds. And that's what I would do. I mean, if you need capacity, carry it. Um, trying to shoehorn it into a smaller gun by using a smaller cartridge at a higher pressure that you don't know that the barrel can opt the length of the barrel can optimize I don't think I don't think they were putting their thinking caps on when they came up with this sounds like just another marketing thing they're gonna sell I I predict they will sell guns to people who will carry them very little shoot them even less but will feel wonderful that they have this little totem of the the most advanced gun on the market the most advanced carry caliber and gun on the market that's what they'll tell themselves so that's where i think it's going and i think they will have a hard time finding it five years from now they're going to have an impossible time of finding ammo okay that brings us to my favorite part of the podcast which is questions and answers and we got a couple of them in here so let's go all right first one is why wasn't the ar modularized early in its production it seemed to wait 30 years before it happened and by modularize um, i believe it is that hey um, here's your lower you have two different uppers one upper is a heavy barrel sniping type rifle dmr type rifle the other is a lightweight one that you can use as an operator to get in and out of vehicles and, and all the rest of it. Um, the other thing is, why didn't they accessorize it more? And I don't really know the answer to that, but it did take about 30 years because the early production ARs were so revolutionary, I don't think people were really looking past it. Um, even up through the, you know, the 1970s and early 1980s, if you had an AR-15, first of all, AR-15s were rare. They were not everywhere like they are now, obviously. They were very rare. If you went to a gun range, you could go to a gun range for many trips and not see one. So they weren't they weren't out there. There wasn't a huge number of them to create a market that needed this modularization. Number two, uh, they never worked out well all that well in my opinion with scopes I mean Colt tried it marginal success um, you know they were great great guns with iron sights and people back then shot iron sights they didn't see iron sights as a problem and the scopes they had back then weren't all that wonderful they were okay but they weren't all that great so you know there there wasn't there wasn't a great scope to put on it there wasn't a great you know red dot to put on it there wasn't a lot of that stuff um to tell a story back in the early early 80s um the ar-15s my family owned which which came from me because i was the ar-15 person uh we put the early and i still have a couple of them we put very early aim points on them they don't look anything like the aim points today but they were an aim point with a three power uh, attachment that's kind of screwed onto the back. And they're pretty funky looking. I mean, they look 80s. They, they look, they do not look super cool. Um, you know, you kind of put it next to your leisure suit. You know, that that's kind of where it is. But 
um, we use those in the and and you could see where the this technology would eventually go and in fact there was a lady who was a she was a, a state assembly woman or some some foolish thing like that uh, and I was in a group and, and you know we took we took her out shooting to, to kind of you know understand hey this is why the 2A is a big deal this is this is why guns and gun rights are a big deal and we're on we're not all ogres we were very successful in that but I had her shoot this AR that was equipped with this sight and and uh, she came back and and the red dot was so impressive to her she says that's an idiot gun any anybody can shoot well with that that's great and um, you know that's that's kind of where it where it started and but it really didn't happen the a2 came out and people said hey you know maybe maybe there are some improvements as soon as they started making the flat top ARs with the detachable handles um, that's where it really took off I mean a few of the other attempts you know where they had the Delta cheek piece and the <laughs> the Tasco scope on top of the a2 um, AR-15 A2 you know they, those were good tries and they were actually cool guns they're actually very cool guns um, but you know it really exploded and, and as as sight technology and accessory technology laser technology flashlight technology as all that stuff came together then we started accessorizing them but if you go back there are a lot of guys and I'm one of them there is something so righteous about shooting the original style AR-15s 20 inch skinny barrel 20 shot magazine iron sights they're simple they're effective they they just they do everything well there's not well I gotta sight this in I gotta sight that in. no no it just you know you get the, those iron sights especially on the A1s man once you had them set they're set um, they're they're not going anywhere and so you're always dialed in very very good system but the reason why was there just wasn't a market and there wasn't the the technology and and the products had not yet developed to the point where you could really do that so that's why they did not accessorize it for about 30 years about 30 years all you could get was the uh, the little you know three and four power scopes which were kind of pretty cool at the time but but um, that was it that was all you could get okay this is a hard one what evolutionary changes were made to the 1911 throughout its history well you could buy a Vickers guide or, or the Vickers the set of Vickers guides whatever it is or there's there's scads of other books that will explain this I can do this very quickly the original 1911 was a great pistol served and, and came out of World War one with a really sterling reputation um, in the mid-20s there were a couple of improvements suggested number one were the scallops around the, the rear of the trigger guard on the frame uh, another one was an arched mainspring housing so it would sit and point in your hand a little better and another one was um, lengthening the grip safety and shortening the hammer so it didn't hammer bite and those came out in what's known as a transition model in the mid-1920s still had the small sights um, had just regular walnut grips 
didn't have the double diamonds or anything. And so they produced a, a fair amount of those, a fair amount. And then gradually, without changing the model designation, they came up with the, uh, they started hardening the slides because they noticed that around certain areas of the slide, it, it could crack. So they hardened it around the slide stop is the big area. Sometimes you'll see it on the finish. It looks like a kind of a half moon and they, the, the uh, uh, slide stop notch is in the center of that. And uh, when they parkerized it, the, because the metal was harder there, it, um, it took a little bit different finish. And, and the sights got a little bigger. Not huge, but they're, they're bigger. I actually like the, uh, those A1 sights. I think they're really good, actually. Um, they're better than I thought they were. You know, that, that's one of those things. Yeah, it's better than I thought it was. Um, those are good sights. So it, they kind of did that. Uh, that was kind of the pattern, and the commercial guns kind of followed suit. And of course, commercial guns in the uh, 20s and 30s, you could get it in 38 Super. You know, pretty cool. Um, in the 50s, people started putting target sights on them and accurizing. Um, Colt, I don't know that Colt ever put an adjustable sight on it. I don't think they actually did. For a while there, people were... Uh, this makes you want to makes you want to throw up in your mouth, but they were actually milling the top of the slide and putting on a Smith and Wesson revolver sight. Yeah, yeah. There's, people do a lot of stupid things. Um, so people would do that. Um, a lot of companies came out with little aftermarket sights. You could just dovetail, you know, just drift out the uh, the fixed sight and put one of these in. Uh, biggest the biggest thing came in the 19 around early 1970s when they came out with the series 70 which had a barrel bushing that had three like springy prongs on it that should have held was supposed to hold the barrel tighter and make it more accurate they found out it didn't matter <laughs> so it was just it was a, it's a, it was a waste of time complete waste of time then they came out with the series 80 which had a firing pin block for reasons no one can understand, they came out with this. Um, but they, they came out that the safety would also lock the firing pin. So, you know, if you dropped it from your hot air balloon and it hit the concrete 300 feet below you, it wouldn't go off. You know, some, some nonsense like that. Um, then they came out with the Colt um, 1991, which had the awesomeness of being a series 80 pistol and the awesomeness of um, having a plastic trigger and a plastic mainspring housing really really the best uh, they, of course they also came out with the gold cup models which which did have adjustable sights and were allegedly built better probably were probably were built tighter to be a target gun but there was a cottage industry several cottage industries of of people who would uh, you'd buy it you'd buy your off-the-shelf cold send it to them they turn it into a target gun and uh you know there were a lot of those a lot of those around you know what was it god clark packmeyer chow all those guys and there's probably even more um so there's that's basically the the long shorts the short long story of, of the 1911 and how it kind of migrated um, yeah the uh, 
and and in fact when I was like a private at Fort Ord I remember I was like an ammo guard on a, at a mortar range and I was issued a 1911 not a 1911 a1 a 1911 pistol because it did not have the scallops so the frame was 1911 anyway what the upper was I certainly didn't remember but I did know enough at the time to know that that was a 1911 and not a 1911 a1 there were some 1911s that uh, I think it was the Marines for some ungodly unknown reason decided to at, at, at ordnance depot level to mill their own scallops um, into the frame like the 1911 a1 had uh, only a few of those were done they look absolutely horrible it's it's a detestable looking thing but they did do it and it is authentic so there you go okay please expand on why trapdoor springfields are good black powder cartridge rifles for a beginner well i thought i covered this pretty close but i'll i'll, I'll give it the college try um, if you're interested in shooting a vintage gun from the 19th century a single shot military style gun you can't beat it um, here's the reason why uh, the, all the Civil War guns are collectibles you know the, the 1861 Springfields and the uh, the five the 1850 what is it 1851 Enfields or 1854 Enfields what, what 1853 those are all collectibles, okay? And they're front stuffers. You, you load them down the muzzle. They're not... Unless you're really into that, they're not a lot of fun. <laughs> that's, that's what I'll tell you. But if you're into that, they're perfectly fun and they're, they're awesome. After, the period after that, from about 1866 to about 1890, um, that's the trapdoor era. And they look just like the Civil War guns but the top has been milled away or manufactured freshly that way and they held a variety of cartridges at first it was uh, 58 caliber rimfire you see those around occasionally those are two three four thousand bucks cool guns but I don't know where you get ammo for it but they're very cool guns because they all have they were converted from uh, Civil War era 1861 or 1863 Springfields so they're very cool uh, then you have the ones that were newly made and they were in 50-70 50 caliber bullets 70 grains of black powder uh, there's a, there's an inch equivalent it's like the 51 and a half or some some nonsense like that or 52 or whatever it is and uh, you have those they're they're more rare they're 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 probably like just for matter of discussion they're like 50 and they were all essentially the same except for sights and the the last one had the 1888 had a um, a rod bayonet you know so there you go uh, those those can be had for about a uh, anywhere from about 800 to a K depending on condition depending on originality you know some of them you can tell they've had they're kind of mixed masters of parts um, and there's a lot of debate as to whether or not those are 
put together guns or whether they were just kind of repaired. Somebody had two bad guns and they put together one good gun. There's a lot of, di- lot of, lot of back and forth on forums about that. And those go for a little bit less. And all, one, though, that appears to be all correct uh, with the right date on the breech block, the right sights, the serial number that's in the correct range. You know, they're going to go for a little bit more. Um, but the reason, and, and those are great guns, and it's it's like shooting the Civil War gun, only it's more fun because it's a breech loader, and it's not an obvious breech loader, but it's a breech loader, and it's, it's just a lot more pleasurable to shoot. The other thing I've already went over is 4570 is still around. You can get a Lee Mold, which is actually designed after the, the bullet they actually used. For once, Lee kind of kind of produced something that was really super useful. And um, you can mold the 405 grain hollow base bullets. You can load it with black powder or black powder substitute. You can use a uh, large rifle. You, large rifle magnum primer is recommended. And uh, hey, you're off to the races. You know, make sure you got your lube squared away and all the rest of that. And hey, you're off to the races. You know, you're good. You're not trying to form some weird 4060 brass or, you know, something else. So for a beginner, it really simplifies what you have to do to get shooting. And it's a great cartridge. It's a lot of fun. So that's why. And and I covered this last time. So that's why it's it's great. You get that wonderful historical association shooting a rifle that was made in the last part of the you know uh, 19th century and you know they're still fairly common and and the good part about trapdoor rifles is they were not as overtly molested as a lot of later military rifles a lot of them almost all trapdoors stayed in their military configuration some were cut down because they didn't want a rifle they wanted a carbine and there's some interesting very variations uh there are cadet rifles which look like a regular rifle except they're a few inches shorter um there are of course the cavalry carbines and uh you know there's still a lot of parts around for them so you can still you know you can keep the gun in good repair and they haven't been faked at all um you know, Harrington and Richardson made a a trapdoor, a modern trapdoor, but it's very easy to detect. It's not going to fool anybody who even does some basic internet research on what these things are and look like. You know, unlike some of the P53 Enfields that are kind of creeping around on the market, a lot of guys, servicemen from Afghanistan, have brought these things back. So a P53 Enfield may not be the Civil War collectible you think it is. You gotta look very hard at the markings and if it's got some weird markings then buyer beware because it may be one that was nowhere near the Civil War when that was happening. They're fine if you just want an example of that type of gun but they won't have the Civil War history that perhaps a lot of people are looking for. And here is a favorite question. This is our last question. Why would U.S. SOCOM choose the 6.5 Creedmoor over the 260 Remington? The 260 has a similar case to the 7.62 NATO. It's just a 7.62 NATO neck down. And it has a greater powder capacity and higher velocity. Why would SOCOM not go with this? A very familiar round and use something much newer 
and different like the 6.5 Creedmoor? Okay, the answer is I don't know. You have to ask them why they chose it. I do know this, and I have no inside baseball knowledge of this. This is just the, uh, the stuff that was put out in the press. They tested 19 cartridges, including the 260 Remington, and they chose the 6.5 Creedmoor because it basically doubled the hit probability for their snipers. So I could speculate, and my speculation would be this. 260 Remington is probably a barrel burner, and they don't want to do don't want to have that because they're going to train with these quite a bit. Also understand because they've SOCOM is an organization that is very mission focused. So they're going to buy a variety of stuff and whatever mission comes up they're going to collect the equipment that best suits that mission set. Um, it's not like the conventional army where hey you know you get an M4 and if we fight in the Arctic you're gonna fight with your M4 if we fight in the jungle you're gonna fight with your M4 if we fight in the desert you're gonna fight with your M4 uh, it's they don't do that they will take a different if they're going to a radically different environment and have different style mission they are going to take the weapon that is best suited for what they perceive their needs are in that situation so um, they may very well adopt. I'm sure they still have 7.62 NATO sniper weapons. I'm sure they're going to go to 338 Lapua. I, th I think they've already done it. They've got some super long range guys with 338 Lapua. So it depends on what they're doing and how they're doing it is uh, going to dictate, is going to dictate, not going to, going to, going to dictate what weapon they take and how they use it but I would suggest some of these other ones that fell out or didn't make the grade have issues that may not be apparent to the rest of us maybe it was they go through barrels too soon or the barrels lose accuracy far too soon for them um, could very well be that the the 6.5 Creedmoor is so developed at this point with loads with bullets and other things that it's it's much more functional than something that is allegedly superior on paper but doesn't have the load development or any of the other kind of stuff behind it um, could very well be they found that the smaller case capacity was more consistent and that increased their hit probability could very well be any of these things could be variables I'm not saying they are I'm just saying any of those things could be variables could also be that maybe the uh, end weapon was slightly lighter you know and believe me from a guy with a bad back and knees from carrying that additional 20 or 30 pounds of lightweight equipment um, saving a few ounces it all adds up it all adds up so uh, those are the those are the, probably the reasons I would also say Remington as a company and even as an ammunition company probably abandoned the 260 they probably came out with a few loads for it and that was it so therefore there isn't a lot of off-the-shelf uh, really good precision ammo for it like there is for 6.5 Creedmoor even though they're notionally the same the same bore diameter you would think it would be simple but hey why should I pay to develop loads 
for this round when the other round already has this done and meets all the criteria and we're very happy with it. So that is probably the reason. So this brings to an end this edition of Old School Guns. And again, if you have any comments, leave them on Podbean in the comments section or email me at kbmakel at aol.com. kbmakel at aol.com. And until next time, this is Old School Guns, out. <laughs>